I'm Tom Henley, and this is Saga. On the 9th of August, 1814, Sweden fought its last battle. It was the last day in a war against the Norwegians that had lasted just under a month. Since then, for over 200 years, Sweden has become famous for its neutrality. However, as we will see in future episodes of Saga, this neutrality can be debated. One way in which Sweden has managed to dip its toes into the field of war since then has been through the United Nations. We see it today. Look at the news coming out of South Sudan. Violence and brutality and UN troops in the middle. But South Sudan isn't the first of its kind for Swedish UN troops and it won't be the last. One of the most memorable efforts from Swedish UN troops with their camouflage uniforms and bright blue helmets that earned them the nickname of Smurfs comes from the Bosnia War. It was the war that my generation grew up watching on our TV sets, but there are so many dark, unknown sides to the conflict that are still not yet been told. Today's episode is about a massacre that happened in October 1993 in a village north of Sarajevo called Stupnidu, and it comes from three UN soldiers who discovered the horrors that lay hidden in that small, snowy, mountaintop village. And so here it is, their story in their own words. What wears you down are the living, not the dead. Uh, seeing the dead can sometimes make you think about what the living are c capable of doing. Uh, but um, it's really not seeing the dead that, that really wears you down. It, it's living under constant pressure of fear of what the living can do to you. Then, of course, you, you, when you're that young as I was then, you don't think that much. I think I would, uh, it would uh, hurt me more to see dead children today when I have children of my own and, and know what it's all about and, and, and um, than it did then. But, of course, um, you think of... What went through these people's minds in their last moments of their lives? Uh, and that makes you really angry that someone can do that to another human being. And I think what, what made us do the job was that anger. We were very angry when we left Stuttnidu. And that anger was a lot stronger than our fears. Uh, so I think we all felt that we don't care if we die now. 
this has to stop. And we're gonna stop it right here and right now. Sure, let's start from the beginning. I was 24, going on 25. I had my birth, 25th birthday in, in two, three days after this uh, two, two and a half week long crisis. And I was one of, one of the older guys in my uh, company. Since I was 12 years old, I, all, I always wanted to be a soldier. Uh, I even joined the US Marine Corps. Uh, I got f***ed up in a motorcycle accident when I was 17. So then I spent a year and a half in hospital. So then I just served in the Swedish military as a conscript. Uh, dual citizenship, US-Swedish. Then I got the opportunity uh, to sign up and go to ex-Yugoslavia when the war started. And I said, yes, hell yes. This war, as most wars, was driven by money and power. It's a bit difficult to, to understand if you haven't been there, but because my enemy's enemy is my friend sometimes. Let's go back in time and uh, everything started up somewhere in the fall of 1993. The... Uh... Bosnian-Croatian side and the Bosniak side, it's called the Muslim side, uh, they were allies, but they started to uh, fight each other in an area called Varash. And they started fighting, which actually the, the Bosniak side that started a large uh, assault on, on the Bosnian-Croat side. And then it sort of got out of hand. The Croats say that the Muslims started the provocation. And uh, the Muslims, of course, say, say the opposite. So we were running around the area trying to keep these two warring factions, uh, prevent them from, from taking hostilities to, to each other. Now there's fighting all, all over the place. We didn't get enough forces down to the area of Varesh, and that's why I was more or less put there permanently as a reinforcement to the company commander. The Bosnian Serb side didn't want to let any UN forces in to this area. But we got some, some troops in, and uh, our battalion commander decided that this is a job we're here to do, and... Uh, uh, we're going to do it. Uh, we're going to try and protect the uh, civilians. At some point, we hear from the Bosnians that they claim that there's a village that's being erased, and the name of the village is Stupnidu. Stupnidu was, was, a, was a small village that we didn't know about. It was in our area. It was in the area for the 8th uh, mechanized company. 
And uh, but we didn't know about Stupnidu uh, until things started to get nasty. Bosnian Croat commander uh, named Ivica Rajic uh, traveled to the area uh, and he took over command in this uh, town and started committing atrocities. He brought with him maybe 200 uh, war criminals, high on drugs and uh, terrorizing everyone, preferably Muslims, but they also terrorized the Croat side, so nobody really wanted them there. Nobody really seemed to want this uh, war, if you talk to ordinary people. And uh, still, it, it just went on and on and got worse. It was quite obvious that uh, they were doing bad things in Stupnidu. Some refugees came to our camp and told us what was going on. And they told us that, that uh, the Croats uh, attacked uh, Stupnidu. When we heard the witnesses, the decision was made to, we have to enter the village. And Commander Ulf Henriksson went to Ryich's uh, main base. So the battalion commander, Colonel Henriksson, I and I went down there to see what's, what's going on, what's cooking, what's happening. So he goes down there, he wants to see on his own eyes, make his own opinion on what the f*** is going on. And demanded to talk with him. He wasn't allowed, they... they came with these excuses that he wasn't there, but he talked to his second-in-command and told him that uh, now we're entering the village of Stupnidu, uh, and if you won't let us, we'll fight our way in. And uh, I actually had my gun under the table with the safety off, pointed towards the Bobovich Brigade commanding officers. Because if, I mean, we at that point had no idea what's going to happen, if they're going to take us hostage, shoot us, it's going to be a shootout or whatever. It was very, I mean, it was so intense you could actually taste the air. <laughs> uh, and they softened and let us in. And from that moment, uh, the battalion didn't stand down anymore. We did our job. We won a lot of respect on both sides. This decision to fight to our last breath to stop the atrocities. The other side can feel that, because you never win a fight with your tools or with threats or, or with aggressive behavior. You win it in your mind. And uh, you c I could feel the moment when when the other sides in this war, they saw in all our eyes that they had lost. And they, then they backed off. They let us go anywhere. They never stopped us again. Um, so, so I think that, that's, that's the point with it. You can see in someone's eyes when they won't back down. And you can feel it in the air. And that's where you win the fight. You have to decide to win it. Because if you start thinking, will we manage this? Then you have already lost. And we started seeing smoke rising from the village. And, and we were already in a very difficult situation. Uh, we were attacked, shot at, uh, they threw hand grenades on our uh, APCs. And we forced ourselves into the village 
at that time. Of course, we should have done it much earlier if we known what had happened there. But it was a lot of rumors, and it was was uh, nothing was really really clear. Uh, the whole village was flattered was burning from some minor fires in, in the village, as I recall it. Uh, you had dead bodies uh, laying around left and right. Uh, there, I remember there's a picture of a dead uh, guy. He's a dead guy, of course. Uh, he's burned to pieces in the middle of the village. Uh, a dog has been started chewing on his thigh. It's actually my... Actually, I was actually a photographer of that picture. That's my picture. It isn't real until you're there and, and you have a situation to handle in real life. Every house was destroyed from the inside, meaning blown up, making sure nobody can return to the, to the village. I mean, they have took it, taken over the village, they have burnt houses, uh, put people inside the buildings and, and put it on fire, and there was a massacre. A couple of ladies, three ladies, down in a basement, cutthroats, a couple of young kids, a year, two years old, something like that. Uh, been kicked, uh, per, um, stroked to death. Um, yeah, they were, anyway, they were dead. They have, have put some, some explosives uh, on the bodies, so it was, it was very dangerous for us to be there. This scenery, if you can imagine that, this is basement, blown-up basement, so it's a ruin, basically. And in the basement, there is you now three ladies. Uh, and in one of the armpits, somebody put in, uh, the, obviously the crow has put in a, a hand grenade, a live hand grenade. So when you remove them, the hell in this idea was that when somebody touches these bodies, the hand grenade is going to fall down on the ground and blow up, whoever is trying to, to remove these people. It was a total, total disaster. It was houses were burnt down, people were shot, people were burned. And uh, it was a, a clearing operation we had to do, to put uh, people into coffins and, and, uh, and, and to clear out. Then was just cleaning up, I mean, cleaning up the village and let, let whoever need to take care of the dead and, and so on. And we would just carry on what we do. I've seen war before, I've seen warfare before, but this was one kind of a, <laughs> on a new level because, I mean, there was no troops here involved. This is pure civilians, uh, women, children, old men. The Stupnido atrocities were ordered by Ivica Rajic as a revenge on the Bosniak, the Muslim side. So they entered a village and basically killed everyone and burnt all the houses down. Men, women, old people, little infants, children, everybody raped and killed uh, a whole village. There was one man coming first, he was in the 60s, 65. He had plastic bags on his uh, feet, and he said, please don't leave, there are more people on the hillside. There were refugees from this village in the middle of nowhere, uh, no man's land, uh, and they were hunted by uh, riots uh, soldiers. So we decided to uh, pick them up. We have to do that because they'll die otherwise. Uh, they'll find, find them and they'll kill them. And we won't have any witnesses left from those atrocities. I think there were 28 of them. Uh, and they really didn't, didn't get room in our APCs, but we managed to get room for them. And then we just said, let's go uh, as fast as we can to, to the other side. So we, we turned south and we, we forced, I think, one or two Croat checkpoints just in, in full speed. 
and uh, drove them to to their side of the border. The heavy machine gun where I stood, I had uh, my whole body <laughs> in the, uh, exposed to enemy fire. So <laughs> it was really uh, not a pleasant situation. But I, I think, uh, I remember that still today. I, I think I've never been that proud in my life. And I thought, if you kill me now, uh, at least I've done something. I've saved the lives of 28 people. My name is Magnus Anström, and I'm 48 years old today. Uh, but I went to Bosnia in 1993, and we were the first large Swedish battalion there. So, uh, I'm Rusty, uh, Rusty Ekenheim, and I was as there in Stupendu when things, uh, event, event happened and, um, in 1993. My job was basically, I was a personal assistant to different commanders of the Swedish troops. Personal assistant, interpreter, bodyguard, um, whatever you want to call it. Rusty Ekenheim was uh, an interpreter speaking the, the language in Bosnia. So uh, he was a really good asset. Uh, I don't think he was afraid of anything. <laughs> he never wore a helmet. <laughs> <laughs> I hated the goddamn thing. I really did. Uh, and I look much better in picture with no helmet. So <laughs> I think I have a picture of him wearing a helmet once. Uh, you probably want me to burn that, then. Absolutely. I mean, that's a major penalty having a picture like that. <laughs> this was a, uh, a civil war, so you have a lot of people running around all over the place. Uh, they have no helmets. They have no protect protective equipment. No flak jackets. Nothing like that. And there we go in our armored vehicles, back and forward. Uh, <laughs> I think that if you bring down yourself a little bit down to the same level as the rest of the population, you can gain a lot. Daniel Ekberg, I had only met in one instant when he uh, complained about something in the way I wore my uniform. So I wasn't too happy with him. I, I can understand his, his opinion in the beginning. I mean, you, you in all armies, you have that kind of uh, hierarchy and... Uh, and it's not so easy for, for a private to talk to a major, and uh, you can get the perception of a person that is not totally true. And then he, he stepped into my APC when we were going on this uh, rescue mission. And uh, two hours later, I found out that he was one of the best officers that has ever lived, basically. He was very, very competent. He trusted us soldiers, he gave us very good directives, but let us do our work, both as soldiers and as human beings. He never tipped over too much to one side. You have to be both a soldier, doing, managing difficult situations, uh, and, and being tough enough. We can never lose the human side, stop being a, a, human, a human being. And he really managed that balance in a very impressive way. I'm very happy that he changed his mind, and I'm very proud of his, his good recognition.
it's nothing special being a soldier going to war, basically. It's just a little bit worse than most things we, we meet in everyday life. But we meet death and atrocities even in a regular society. It's just, just not that common. On the other hand, there are good sides happening in war that you never meet in everyday life incredible sacrifices that people do for other other human beings that, that you never see in everyday life. So I think, think you have to try to build on the good things in life. It's always hard to adapt because there, there's never a good moment to talk about the war. If you tell people what it's like, they think you're exaggerating or that you're trying to plant some myths or something, or that you're crazy. Uh, if you don't talk about it, everyone thinks that you feel so bad that you have become a psychopath or something. So for, for a soldier to talk about the war with people that hasn't been there, it's very difficult. Uh, and I think everyone coming back from uh, a conflict zone knows that feeling then what am I going to say if I talk about it it gets uncomfortable for people if I don't talk about it it still gets uncomfortable for people uh, I think the, the only way is, is uh, it's just talk about it and if, if people don't want to believe you well fine you don't have to you don't have to believe people's stories um, if people do believe you and learn something from it and we can all try to make this world a little better from using other people's uh, stories and experiences then even better so uh, i think the worst thing you can do is just just stop talking about things you have to discuss everything Te žrtve su bile nepotrebne baš kao i rat između dva prijateljska naroda. After the war, the man who had created all of the horror and destruction that Magnus Rusdi and Daniel discovered went into hiding in the seaside city of Split in Croatia. In 2003, he was finally arrested, and in 2005, at a tribunal, he confessed to what he had done. He said, Obiteljima stradali. Upućujem ispriku I should like to apologize to the families of the people who have suffered, expressing my full sympathies and my deep regrets for the loss of their nearest and dearest. This comes from the heart, and it is my sincere regret, because I understand the pain and suffering. I know this because the war brought me pain and suffering to my own family, as it did to many other families, regardless of their ethnicity. But... For the 37 Bosniaks that he and his troops murdered, these words came too late. It is over 20 years since a small group of Swedish UN troops entered Stupnidu on a miserable October morning, but the village still weighs heavy on their minds.
Yeah, no, it's not easy to forget. I mean, uh, you can always blame yourself why we didn't get in earlier, but that would have costed the uh, uh, Swedish or no, uh, Nordic lives. I'm, I'm pretty sure about that. And United Nations uh, command didn't want us to do that. So, but maybe, I mean, we can always say that maybe we should have taken that action anyway uh, and forced ourselves in at an earlier stage. Maybe we could have prevented uh, the massacre. I doubt it because it was not clear uh, when it happened. It was not clear uh, at that time uh, that something was was going on, on up there because the communication was not too too good down to, to the main city of Baresh. That moment defined the whole battalion and a lot of us, all of us that, that uh, were members of the battalion, that's when a lot of us grew up. You always have to be loyal to your purpose and your mission more than regulations or routines. Uh, and if you're loyal to your purpose and your mission, you always sleep well at night. The villagers of Stupnidu are still really thankful. The school in Varesh is still named after our battalion. Saga is me, Tom Henley. The theme shown is by the bearded Anton Beckman. And I want to thank Magnus, Rizdi and Daniel for taking time out of their summer holidays to talk to me about all of this. Join me next time for another Saga.